since they have done a Gita home study and they are completing it, I will give a summary of the 18th chapter. That is what we will be doing. This is how it will be, more or less, distributed. There is a saying, Gita Sugita Kartavya Kim Anyaihi Shastra Vistaraihi. There is a shloka somebody wrote in the praise of the Bhagavad Gita. Gita Sugita Kartavya Kim Anyaihi Shastra Vistaraihi. Does it matter what you study or don't study? The Bhagavad Gita must be studied very, 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 very well. If the Bhagavad Gita is studied very, very well, of what use are all the other Shastras? This is a very tall praise. Right? And it could be that we are we are used to hyperboles, exaggerations. And that is how we talk in the daily life. How was this movie? Oh, it was out of this world. It's obviously not true because it's still in this world. It's playing in the theater. Somewhere. It's not true that it's out of this world. It is the way of talking. And we have these grandiose terms. This is great. This is best. East or west. <laughs> this is how it is. So, maybe the praise of the Bhagavad Gita is also like that. Perhaps it is all an exaggeration. We can, it can be argued. But after all, this is how we talk. And so if somebody says, if, the, if we study the Bhagavad Gita well, our job is done. We don't need anything else. What is the use of any other Shastra? We can say that. And maybe it is another exaggeration. Not so. Because the Bhagavad Gita is if we do, if we unpack the Sandhi Bhagavataha Gita. In fact, there is no word called Gita in Sanskrit. It is Gitam. It has been deliberately feminized so that it would go along with the Shastra, the teaching, which is always feminine. Shruti, feminine. Teaching, Vidya, feminine. Bhagavataha Gita. It's the song of the Lord. Song, why? Because not that you're supposed to sing the Bhagavad Gita. You just chant it. But song iva, Gitam iva, means it is pleasant to hear. And when they named it Bhagavad Gita, they were not thinking of heavy metal music. <laughs> so, Something that is pleasant to hear. It could be Western, it could be North Indian, it could be South Indian, but something that is nice to hear. You feel like hearing 
Oh, I want. That is what it is. It is like that, like a song that you hear, that you feel like hearing more and more. Then the sandhi, the way in which the words combine, Bhagavad Gita, can be unpacked in two ways. It's a song of the Lord. This is what is called the, uh, the object-based interpretation of the Lord. So the Lord is the, you know, so Karmani Shashna. You can say song of the Lord. Or you can say the song for whom the subject matter is the Lord. You can take it like the object of the song is God. God is the subject matter of the song. Or you can say the Lord's song. Both ways it goes. Very beautiful. So if we are talking about that which is God, which about whom, about which we have many, many, many interpretations and many, many ideas, most of which are odd, <laughs> even though we say it is about God. Odd because we have so many ideas. God is someone who is somewhere else. And then some people, if you ask, they are convinced that God is male. And then if you ask some people uh, in certain parts of the world, they say God is female. And so many things like this. And Sometimes our own ideas are filled with a lot of confusion. God is formless, but we insist it's a he. That is the So like this, all these uh, confusions are there. Notions are there. And in this tradition, that has produced the Bhagavad Gita. The tradition itself has a very, uh, has done a, a very sophisticated analysis and the primary texts of the tradition describe or rather reveal Ishvara, God, as that which is not outside of you. You means not the one that is embodied from the standpoint of the body-mind-sense complex. One will always be small. One will always be finite. One will always be subject to various limitations. But we are talking about that which is the indweller of this body-mind-sense complex. And when everything that is finite is cognitively removed, what remains is awareness, that consciousness. And that consciousness is non-separate from that which is the cause of the universe. This is what is the revelation of what we call Vedanta Shastra. And that is that same revelation is, is the subject matter of the Bhagavad Gita.
So if there is a song of the Lord or the subject matter of whom is the Lord, then what can you say about it? If you say it is wonderful, God being limitless is not flattered. In fact, that's why we have thousand and eight names of the Lord. Hundred and eight names we have in the tradition. You are the best. Bhagavan remains the same, doesn't get carried away. <laughs> you are great. Aha, uh -huh. okay. <laughs> because we are talking of that which is infinite. So the, when the infinite is praised, it does not become finite it, and it does not grow because the infinite plus one is still infinite. And so in this way, that's why it says the Bhagavad Gita must be studied very well of what use uh, are all other works, all other scriptures. This is, you know, in the tradition, all other Upanishads, all other things, what is the use? Meaning that the Bhagavad Gita is very much in, is in the business of revealing the message of the primary scriptures of the tradition, which are called the Upanishads. In fact, the Bhagavad Gita itself is called Gita Upanishad. Gita, which is like an Upanishad. Gita Upanishad, it is called. And what is the Upanishad? In fact, I often say it should be called Upanishad because it makes you shed wrong notions. Wrong notions about oneself, about the world, and about the source of the world. That is what it is. And these wrong notions are the result of atma ajnana, self-ignorance about oneself. And these wrong notions are the cause of sorrow. Always there is some sorrow or the other. That's why it's called samsara. Some sorrow or the other is there all the time. And the person subject to samsara is called samsari. Very, very sorry. <laughs> Always very. This samsari. And so, if it is true that I am subject to sorrow, that I am subject to anger, then always. That I am subject to limitations. That I am subject to all kinds of things. Anger, fear. That I am subject to sorrow, it should be acceptable to me. But it is not. You just told me that. That I am an angry person should be acceptable to me. But again, it is not. Because what I want to be is happy, kind, compassionate, accommodative at all times. And this is not true only of the Hindu tradition. In any tradition, you ask, I want to be compassionate. I want to be happy. I want to, this is what one wants. This is the, what one wants when? Always. Always one wants this. 
so we are in a very funny and interesting predicament. I want to be happy, but then I want to be happy always, but then there is a frantic kind of a activity to gain this happiness and frantic activity to hold on to this happiness. That is also there. Having gained it, I'm not happy just gaining it because then it has to be protected from becoming its opposite. <laughs> happiness has to be protected from itself, really. Just like money has to be protected from itself. That's why we have inflation and all these things. Then the other half of my life is, in, is, is there in trying to avoid the sorrow. Avoiding the sorrow, avoiding the sorrow and going towards happiness. This is the whole entire life of any given person in any country. This is the human quest. This is not a Muslim quest or a Hindu quest or any particular Buddhist quest. This is the quest of any person. If you have a human life, if you're a human being with a human head, then this is the quest. <laughs> this is the quest. And it seems like a setup because I want to be happy. And then what? But wherever I go, there is sorrow. <laughs> and then I have to fight off the sorrow and keep hanging on to the happiness whenever it comes. And when it comes, I don't know how to hold on to it, I don't know. And the more I hold on to it, the more it seems to be, it seems to be elusive, going away. Yeah. Very, very difficult to hold on to. So, then what to do? I don't want to give up this vision. This vision which is in keeping with the human quest. I want to be happy always. How do you know that this is the truth of you? Without having studied a single scripture of any tradition. How do you know that this is the truth of you? You know this because you have felt it. You have experienced it. When? You have experienced it in sleep. Whether the sleep comes in Vedanta class or at night when it is supposed to come. <laughs> in Vedanta class, one gets the most delicious sleep. One of the senior teachers in our tradition senior disciple of Pujya Swamiji, his, his, he teaches in Chennai, Swami Paramathanandaji. I a student. This was a few decades back. And so she was going to his Gita class and she had a sudden guest. Her classmate came, dropped in after a long time, who stayed in a different city, wanted to surprise her. And so the friend welcomed her and said, here for a few days, why don't you come with me to the class? 
He said, sure, I'll come with you. Let's both go. So they both went. And after that, after the talk was over, he, the friend said, the, the, the lady said to her friend, would you like to go meet the Swami? Yes, yes, yes. I would very much like to meet and talk to the Swami. So when she met the Swami, she said, oh, there is some magic in him. You are amazing. You are so good. And I never thought you could do what you did. Swamiji said, what did I do? I have been on three kinds of sleep medicine. No use. I have been on Xanax, anti-anxiety. No use. I have I am even taking Ayurvedic sleep medicine called Manasa Mitravati. No use. Who started to talk? Immediately I had the best sleep in the whole world after a long, long time. You are definitely a very enlightened Swami. You give people what they want. So regardless of where the sleep comes, in sleep, what is there other than happiness? Nothing other than happiness. There is no credit card debt. There are no bugs in sleep. Even if there are, you don't notice they are, they are there. They just scratch and then next day morning you will have a welt. But in that time, in that time there is no problem. There are no bugging people in sleep. No in-laws in sleep. No outlaws in sleep. Nothing. All that is there is you. And in a way, you are one with the source of the universe. You are, you are in the lap of God. In sleep, you are one with everything. You are one with God. That's why everybody wants to go to sleep, but is loath to get up. All kinds of alarm clocks. The kind that run away from you is a new kind. It's called a rubber casing so that it can drop itself. It's kind of round and it's got a rubber casing. So it'll ring very annoyingly. I'm told I haven't met this particular. <laughs> and then you, you try to shut it up. Find the snooze button. Oh, it doesn't have any no snooze button. And then it runs, falls off the bedside table, rolls into the next room, and continues to ring. So you are forced to get up. Why? Because nobody wants to come out of this oneness. Nobody wants to come out of this oneness. This is exactly why it's in, in sleep that happiness is there, but one is not there to experience that happiness. As an experiencer, one doesn't know it in real time. Later on, you can say, what a great sleep that was. I had a good time. I did not know anything. 
in sleep one knows that which is called in the tradition as ananda limitless joy one is experiencing every day in sleep in sleep one knows in waking also one knows on those few occasions when one can discover in oneself an appreciative not demanding objective person usually what is it that comes out <laughs> a non appreciative demanding critical judgmental person but i'm not happy being that i'm not happy being critical i'm not happy being judgmental either self judgmental or judgmental of others i'm not happy at all so in our tradition the philosophy of this tradition posits a very radical truth perhaps you are already what you want to be this is something to consider for some days very accommodating very compassionate even if somebody cuts me off on the road i say oh perhaps they are in a hurry perhaps they are having a bad day i don't feel the need to overtake them and say a few choice words as i'm passing the car i don't feel the need oh let them go it's okay keep here it's all right so therefore the radical philosophy here is that you are already what you want to be so if i'm already what i want to be then i cannot say i want to be more i want to be happy i want to be compassionate i want to be whole cuz i am already what i want to be so the distance between what i want to be and what i already am what is this distance Hmm? the distance is that of self ignorance the distance is ignorance the distance is a product of ignorance and it is self ignorance not knowing the fact that i am already what i want to be and not knowing that one gets into this frantic activity of always trying to squeeze the finite in order to get drops of the infinite easier it is perhaps to squeeze a pebble and expect olive oil to come out if i squeeze it a little harder i'll get virgin extra virgin olive oil even perhaps that will happen but always engaging with objects at the cost of the subject i this is not going to if i am already what i want to be 
and I don't know it. The solution is to know it. Solution is to know it. I have to just know it. And that is what the Bhagavad Gita is all about. It's the knowledge of who you really are. Illustrated through a particular individual who finds himself known as Arjuna, who finds himself in dire situation, the most dire situation. In fact, we feel sorry for him until we realize, oh, this is our situation also. Everybody's situation. And this poor Arjuna, what does he do? He just keeping on, keeping on, keeping on. Stockpiling. He's a warrior. Great commander-in-chief. He nurses a big sorrow. What is the sorrow? His cousins. He's blessed with a hundred and one of them. Hundred and one cousins. And all of them are they all grew up with him in the same palace. They all wore the finest clothes. They all went to the finest Gurukulas. Gurukula means a cool school. <laughs> Gurukul. So, residential school. All went to the same and they all had the same teacher to teach them fine arts, archery, everything. Arjuna has four other brothers. They are five of them. The rest of the gang, there are 101 of them, but they grew up together. But those 101 always grew up with a little chip on the shoulder. Maybe a big chip. Question is why? I mean, they had this more or less the same upbringing, same opportunities. Why did these other 100 always have a sense of lack, a sense of want, and then, unfortunately, because of that, they became bullies. You know, bullies? Yeah. Anybody they saw, they felt like beating them up. And then they would say, oh, hi. Nice to beat you. <laughs> That's all they would say. Yeah. Nice to beat you. So that was the first thing they would do is beat somebody up. And then you ask, who are you? What do you want? <laughs> Why did this happen? See, this is all a very nice allegory in the Mahabharata. A beautiful allegory. Dhritarashtra is their father, blind by birth. Blind means metaphorically unseeing, not seeing what there is to see, and uh, refusing in denial. That is what is the blindness here. In denial of what there is. And then he had a wife. Her name is Gandhari. From the modern, a, a descendant from the modern day Kandahar, which is now in Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistani lady. Okay? Before, much, much before the Taliban. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and 
because the Bhagavad Gita, Mahabharata is 5,000 years old, at least. So then, stupid lady, not a little bit of sense in her. She agreed to marry him. She was told, he cannot see. Will you, be, will you agree to this marriage? She said, yes. What should she have done? She should have said, oh, husband of mine, let me be your eyes. Let me describe for you all the things you cannot see, the colors, the forms, the beauty of this universe. Let me, let me be there for you. That's not the decision she made. He said, if my poor husband can't see, why should I see? See that? And on the day of the wedding, she asked for big pads and a patti. What is patti? How do you say it in English? Like bandage. Yeah. A blindfold. Yeah. So she put these two pads, you know, so that they would seal the eyes. And she put a blindfold. And she said, from now on, I'm not going to see. Stupid decision number one. Oh, you mean there are more? You bet. Such people shouldn't have children, honestly. Because who is going to bring them up? Stupid decision number two. They decided to have 101 children. 100 boys and one girl. Yes. Children need eye contact. They need to be appreciated. We need to love them. And here one refusing, both of them refusing to see. One by birth, another by nature. <laughs> what was this? So the children, they had all the comforts in the palace. They grew up without the love of the primary caregivers. Primary caregivers, really. No eye contact, no validation. And that's how this group called the Kauravas, these cousins, grew up very badly, bullying everybody and having a sense of lack. And as the 16th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita says, they had what is called Asuric tendencies. Asura means? Demonic, demonic beings, yeah. Demonic tendencies, psychopathic tendencies, sociopathic tendencies. Then there was a terrible war between the brothers, and no, nobody could avert this war. Lord Krishna which is the avatara of, see, after this uh, two movies called Avatar came up. Yeah, I don't have to, I don't have to translate the word avatara. So here, avatara, the way of Krishna. This one is Krishna. <laughs> Krishna is seen as an avatar. Just like Jesus Christ also is an avatar. God walking the earth to teach some things. Sometimes teach a lesson that is also there. And so 
These avatar are teachers in the Bhagavad Gita, in the personage of the teacher of this philosophy, which we are talking about, that you are already whole, already free, and already compassionate and limitless and happy. There's nothing you have to do in order to get this knowledge other than exposing yourself to these teachings. This is what has to be done. And so Arjuna is the commander-in-chief and everybody tries to avert the war. Even Krishna goes to the other side. And there we have the character called Duryodhana who has a brother called Dushasana. Both, of, both the names mean badly behaved, bad character. Which mother and father will name them like that? I think his name must have been Suyodhana and his brother's name must have been Sushasana, means well behaved. But because they had a reputation that was 10 miles long, which was preceding them, that's why they, everybody said, okay, these names do not suit you. They are going to change their names. So the names got changed to you know, bad news, badly behaved, idiot, all this. <laughs> this, became the, this is what became their names. So Lord Krishna went, goes to Duryodhana and says, just give the fight, take the kingdom into because these people usurped the kingdom. Even though it wasn't theirs to usurp. Okay, give them five regions so each of the brothers can have them. No. And then what? Okay, give them one principality with five little villages. No. Give them one village. They can share it. No. Give them one house with five rooms. No. Give them one room with five corners, pentagon. No. And then he said, don't bother with this argument. I will not even yield as much space is occupied by the head of a, to the tip of a pin. How much space? No space at all. But I won't give them any space. That's how the war broke out. And Arjuna, you know, was, the war was to take place after 12 years of exile in the forest which the Pandavas had to undergo because they made the mistake of playing dice with these kinds of people who cannot be trusted. How can you gamble with these kinds of people? You're literally gambling away your sanity which is what these Pandavas, these five brothers did. They had nothing. They even staked their wife, they had a wife, one, one wife, five husbands. A very interesting case of polyandry, but there is a story attached to it that we can talk about later. Then they stake the wife because in that, in that desire to win and gamble more and more, they did not realize that the wife and children are not property. Mistake the wife. And Dushyasana said, oh, 
Now she belongs to us. I'm going to disrobe her in public. She started to remove her sari in a huge, big court of everybody. And she first looked to her husband. She had five of them. And all of them were like this with the head. <laughs> head bowed down because they felt that they have staked her in this game of dice. So they cannot go and interfere. So she calls out to Krishna. She said, are you going to get, let this injustice happen? Do you want, you know, all the women of the world to just lose their trust in you? And then he does some miracle by which the sari becomes longer and longer and longer. And Dushyasana develops a repetitive shoulder injury. After keeping on pulling, 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 nothing. One sari finishes, another sari comes, another, and the whole, the whole room is full of saris. But Draupadi's modesty, the wife's modesty is saved. Then there is a little bit of another story also attached to this. When they see all these beautiful saris there, magic saris. And Lord Krishna, they had just suddenly appeared. So Dushyasana, even though he was defeated in this, in this enterprise of trying to disrobe Draupadi in, the, in this public court, he still felt like, oh, I don't, I'm not a loser. Look, we have all these wonderful saris. So he told all the wives of the Kauravas. At least a hundred of them, but maybe, you know, in those days, each one had a harem. So I think, you know, they had all these, so many wives. So he told all of them, what are you looking at here? Grab whichever color you like. Go wear it and come. And everybody will have magic saris. So magic saris, <laughs> these women came out wearing. The magic saris disappeared because their work was done. This is what it says. So sad story because why do the women have to pay for all the uh, bad behavior of the men? So then the war was unavoidable. So that's why they had to go for 12 years incognito. Uh, uh, 12 years in the forest, one year incognito. And after that, they, they said they'd give the kingdom back. They did not give the kingdom back. And so the war ensued. Arjuna had been waiting for this moment. He was filled with just so much disgust for these people and their nefarious ways because they wouldn't let them even be uh, calmly living in the forest. They would hunt them down and trouble them and try to do all kinds of things. So Arjuna very quickly wanted to make short shrift of them. He couldn't wait for the war. He really wanted the war very, very badly wiped out. And then came the time where Lord Krishna became the charioteer of Arjuna. Because Arjuna went to Lord Krishna and said, I want you to be with me. Krishna said, I don't take sides. I really don't take sides. 
I can be with you, but you can either have a non-fighting me or I have an army. Lord Krishna was the king, so he had an army. You can take my army. The Yadava army, famous. Only one Yadava can destroy another Yadava and indestructible army. Yet Arjuna says, I want you with me. I don't want anything else. And so since he cannot hang around the battlefield just like that, he just sat in the chariot and became the driver. And Arjuna forgets it is Krishna driving the chariot. He thinks, oh, James, take me. Take me in between the two armies. Let me see who dare fight with me in this terrible battle. Let me see who it is. Who these people are. Take my chariot and put it in between the two armies so that I can inspect everything. And Krishna just says yes. But Krishna is very, very clever. He knows this is a teaching moment. And he's not going to lose this teaching moment. Takes it in between the two armies, all right. But puts the chariot right where all the elders are there. Elders, young boys. Basically, two categories of people in whose lap Arjuna had played and other nephews who had played in his own lap. These are the people that these are the people that Arjuna encountered. Then like this it went on. Arjuna lost all his confidence. He could not look in the eyes of Bhishma, the great grandsire of the war. He could not make eyes with his teacher, Drona, who had unfortunately, due to wrong priorities, joined the other side, even though he should have been. He could not make eye contact with a lot of these people who had really gone to the wrong side. He did not know what to do, what to say, how to be. And seeing all the elders, he lost his confidence. And like a five-year-old child who says, Mom, I have stomachache. I'm not going to school today. He said, Krishna, I don't want to fight this war. Not for war. Victory. What is the victory? Victory is for the sake of kingdom. And what is the use of kingdom if the people with whom we enjoy the kingdom are not there? Meaning, the other side will be vanquished. Why will you want to enjoy the kingdom with these people who have done so much harm to you? It's a psychological problem. <laughs> Age-old psychological problem where one continues to be surrounded by toxic people and chooses to be around these toxic relationships even though one can easily walk up. This is how it is. And so sometimes what happens is that, you know, uh, there is some, uh, what is that called? 
Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. There was a bank robbery in the in 1920s or something. I don't know when, but there was a bank robbery. Maybe 50s. Uh, there was a bank robbery in Stockholm. Stockholm Bank. And one hostage was there. Well, a few hostages were there. And the robber took these hostages. And there was a standoff inside the bank for almost a week. After the sixth day, the hostages were rescued. And surprisingly, they would not go home. They were more concerned about the welfare of the robber. Oh, please don't put him in jail. At least he was kind. At least he didn't kill us. Like this, they were making preposterous excuses for him. So this is called Stockholm Syndrome, where as a coping mechanism, one makes excuses for the conquerors. And this is exactly where we find a, a, in the same situation, Arjuna, making excuses for all these people. Of what use is the victory? Victories for uh, kingdom. Why should I have kingdom? For enjoyment. Then what is the use of enjoyment without those people who will have, who I have to kill? I have to kill my own people. This is terrible. I don't want this at all. Therefore, what are you going to do? You've already enlisted. And even now, you know, if you are in the military, you cannot just suddenly leave. It's called dereliction of duty. It's a, it's a crime. It's a crime. You have to, you know, you have to tell people, you have to do whatever, however long they say you have to be before you can get your freedom, then you leave. But you can't just suddenly leave. That too in the middle of the war. But in India, there's always a way out. What is the way out? You just grab the first piece of orange cloth that you can do. Even if it's in the shape of a mask, doesn't matter. Got a piece of orange. And then what do you do? You say, okay, I want to renounce all my duties. Why? In order to be one with these teachings, in order to have time to study. And all I want to do is study, do some seva, do some service to the universe. That's all I do. I teach, I study, I just live this life. Arjuna didn't think that far. Arjuna was just operating under the maxim. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And he was looking for a way out. And then he mentally visualized himself. I think I will look good in orange. I should go on Amazon.in, India. Okay. And then order a few dhotis, a few wraps. And, and slowly push off from this war. Go to Haridwar where half the people are in orange, even today. Rishikesh, Haridwar, all these places. When I was in Rishikesh once, uh, long back, when I was uh, uh, studying there, I uh, had a cold. And so I went to a pharmacy, like a, uh, what is that called? Medical shop. And it was run by sannyasis. 
two of them. And then they said, I just said, I just want some Hicks. They said, no, 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 Hicks is not very good. You need, if you, if you just buy Hicks, you need to pray a lot for this coal to go. <laughs> Instead, you buy this, they gave something else. And then they didn't know where it was. So it was somewhere up, perched. And so another sannyasi climbed the ladder, very spry fellow. He climbed the ladder very quickly and then got that ointment and got some pills and said, you take this, you take this. And then, uh, you know, he saw that I was also in orange, but then he got a little worried whether he's going to get paid or not. Yeah. So he pointed to the sign. The elder sannyasi pointed to a sign which said, cash today, credit tomorrow. Very clever. Successful shop. I thought, I'll just go there. She turned on a tree. And if I have a bowl, somebody just fill up the bowl two, three times a day. I just eat it. This is not sannyasa, really. In fact, the whole Bhagavad Gita talks about what sannyasa really is. This is not sannyasa. Because sannyasa is not leaving something that you do not like. Otherwise, the whole world will be full of sannyasi. Because who likes what they are doing? Nobody. Nobody likes what they are doing. The sannyasa is that which you drop out of an understanding that whatever I am doing is no longer serving what I really want to gain from this life. That is sannyasa and that is what is described in the pages of the Bhagavad Gita. So he's almost gone. He just says, okay, I'm going because this war is just, uh, and he suddenly becomes a pacifist. He says, this is terrible. All the women will be widowed and the gender ratio will be badly affected and the women will have no protectors and this will make sure that all the invaders will come into the, into the country and then our culture will go. Our ways of being will go. All, everything will go, 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 go. It is just terrible. And then on this grim, sad, desolate note, the first chapter ends. And the second chapter also, he's sitting in the chariot, which is flooding fast with his tears. And Lord Krishna gives him a little scolding, some kind of a shock therapy. But this is not the time to say, I know it's so hard because they're in the middle of a war. It's already been declared. The cattle drums have been, are, are, are going. Somebody is blowing the conch shell and arrows are whizzing past. This is not the time to, there's no time to say, take your time. <laughs> and let's see, I think I know a good therapist and then you can go visit them. In the enemy tent, they are there. Maybe they will, they will take care of your PTSD and then you can come back and find them. All that. It's time for action, you have to act. You cannot say, oh, I had a terrible childhood. <laughs> I'm getting flashbacks. All that has to wait. 
your life is in danger and then you have a duty to do right now so he says what happened to you this is not the arjuna i know shut up and fight get up and fight stop crying get up fight and then arjuna pulls himself together and he is still confused he says i don't know what to do i really don't know what to do i can't kill these people these are my people and the word my here is again a dysfunctional sense of belonging that is going to be questioned in the subsequent chapters these are my people and i don't know how to destroy them i don't know why to destroy them i don't know how to kill them i don't want to kill them you tell me what is the best thing to do you tell me what to do and that's how the teaching begins and the teaching is very interesting the teaching centers around sorrow because arjuna is crying so much and is in so much anguish and the lord krishna who is driving the chariot says ashochya nanvashochastvam pragnyavadamscha bhashase gatasum agatasumscha nanushochanti panditah oh arjuna you are talking like a pandit you are giving these big lectures on how the society will be in out of balance because of this war therefore the war should not be fought etc 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 but yet you are grieving over things that do not deserve grief one can say that arjuna is not a good friend <laughs> because if you have a friend who is crying you can't say you are crying over nothing then the friend will no longer be a friend to pat them on the back and to say i understand it's so difficult now that is appropriate response as a friend but here arjuna is not being a friend he is teaching he is being a teacher so he is just pointing out something from the standpoint of being a teacher that has to be looked into very carefully oh arjuna he says you are grieving over that which must not be grieved over and there are only two categories of things that become the cause of grief he says one is gatasavah and the other one is agatasavah what is this gatasavah and agatasavah gatasavah means those from whom the breath has departed means what dead continue of saying dead those from whom the breath is yet to depart <laughs> alive for now right now alive next moment we don't know there are two categories so those from whom the breath is departing what is the point if you agree are they going to come back to life those from whom the breath is yet to depart if you grieve and if you worry that they are going to go they are going to go they are going to go can they be held back no whatever is going to happen will happen why and what is it happening to it's happening to the body 
happening, the ending comes to the body, not to, you know, not to the person. That person is, you know, is invincible. That which indwells this body-mind sense complex is a presence that never comes to an end, that keeps changing form, changing name. But is its existence is there always. Like even when you say flower, flower is. That is never comes to an end. Flower bud is. Blooming flower is. Blossomed flower is. Wilted flower is. Withered flower is. And then composted flower is. Another flower is. The is continues. The flower changes. Flower changes means the name and the form keep changing. And that which is the presence, so to speak, that upholds the name and form, because of which the name and form rely on that presence in order to be the flower, that is ness, if I can put it that way, never, never goes away. And that is, what is, is Ishvara. Ishvara means God. When you spell Ishvara in English, what are the first two letters? Is. That's how to remember. And that is further resolves into I, awareness, consciousness, presence. This is what he said. That these people who you think are going, you are killing them. You are killing them. This is a war. You have a role. Their deaths are already assured. Because of what they have done, they have to get some justice. It's already there. You are an excuse. You are an instrument. Be my instrument, he tells Arjuna elsewhere in the 10th chapter, 11th chapter. Be an instrument. Don't be an agent of this world. Be an instrument. And if you are an instrument, you just have to do what you have to do. And you are not killing these people. It is all just happening. It is in the flow. You are doing your job. How come no other war has faced you? You have gone to so many wars. And there you never had any problem with uh, trying to be a pacifist and, be, and, and have an anti-war protest. You were very bloodthirsty. You killed everybody in every war. What is it that is holding you back here? It's the sense of mind. But that sense of mind is so arbitrary. Extremely arbitrary it is. This man is an old story from the 70s, which uh, my guru used to tell. This man was staying in a rented house. He was renting it from his friend who had moved somewhere to, uh, I don't know, somewhere in the Middle East, I think Dubai or something, he moved. And he was there. Then what happened? He, after three years, the family rented this house and for very cheap. It was hardly not the market rent because he was a friend. They were very happy in it. One day they got a letter. A registered letter came. 
and they opened it in anticipation to their surprise. It had the deed of the house. And the man, the friend wrote to them saying, I'm not coming back. And since you love this house so much, enjoy this house. I'm going to give it to you. It's a gift. And the husband and wife were so happy. The whole family jumped up and down, held hands together, did a little dance. All for what? Five minutes. Six minutes maybe. Then what? They said, oh, now that this house is my house, <laughs> belongs to me. The man thought, I have to look now to make sure how it is. Uh-oh, there's a crack. Uh-oh, there's a chip in the paint. And then the wife said, I'm going to look outside. And then she said, oh, the foundation. I bet it's full of termites. That's why they have given this away for free. Because they couldn't take care of it. Or they didn't want this as a headache. It would sell at a loss. Maybe the neighborhood is full of riffraff. And, and the... And the value has come down. This is what it is. As soon as the word my is attached to something, suddenly one becomes extremely critical. Suddenly one becomes extremely judgmental. Suddenly that, that possession. The ownership is okay because you can own many things. But the problem is when the ownership becomes a possession is converted into possession. When you say possessed, actually it is being possessed by that thing called the house. So, we are no longer householder because if you are holding the house, you can drop it. You are house held, held by the house. That is what it is. And so, Arjuna is disabused of this notion by revealing the nature of this I as extremely free of anything final. The I, which indwells the body-mind-sense complex, the truth of this I is cannot be killed, was never born, and therefore not subject to death, not subject to the five elements, like cannot be destroyed by fire, cannot be drowned, cannot be destroyed by air, tornadoes and the like. Cannot be destroyed by earth or by space. Because it doesn't have a birthday. It's always the same. Doesn't have a death day. And that is called Atma, Brahman. That is you. This is how the teaching was. So the second chapter unfolds this beautiful truth of the eye as the indweller of this body-mind-sense complex, that which is not subject to sorrow, that which is itself infinite. And so then what about this body-mind-sense complex? The body-mind-sense complex is, is the one that is animated by this I. But because of the presence of the ahankara, the ego, which owns up everything as itself, which misidentifies the body to be itself. I am as good as the body. I am as good as the mind. I am as good as what I do. 
I am as good as what I endure. This is what is the big mistake. And this mistake is what needs to be removed. Arjuna is told. Then, how to remove it? Well, you have to study this knowledge and you can help yourself to a lifestyle. A lifestyle that is in keeping with this vision. A lifestyle that is given to service and self-growth. That is what is called Karma Yoga. That is the lifestyle. A lifestyle that is given to service. A lifestyle that is totally dedicated to emotional maturity, spiritual growth, self-growth, etc., etc. That is the lifestyle. This is what one, one dedicates themselves to. In fact, he says there are two paths. One path is you just choose to study this 24-7-365 all the time. So you drop everything and you become a student, Brahmachari, or you become a sannyasi, but you sit and study all the time. Oh no, that's not happening. If the person is saying that within themselves, then what other possibility is there? Another possibility that is there is to gain this knowledge gradually while doing other things. There are certain things in life where one has certain skills, one has to offer something, one has certain things to contribute. Plus one has so many desires. Which are not wrong. It's not wrong to have desires. Somebody says, I, I, I want to get married. It's valid. I want to have children. I want to raise a family. It's perfectly valid. I also want this knowledge perfectly valid. You can do both of them. No problem. So long as the knowledge is prioritized in the heart and all the other roles and things that you choose to do, the roles that you were born into and the relationships that you are choosing to do, all of them, what are they? They just become avenues for emotional maturity. Then this will work. Fulfill your desires. You can have a family life. You can go places, see people, see things, do, do this, do that, whatever it is. No problem at all. It's not at all incompatible with this knowledge. It becomes incompatible with this knowledge when the finite is pursued as though it's the infinite. Then it becomes incompatible with this knowledge because it is wrong priorities and you're pursuing the wrong thing. But the pursuit here is an as-though pursuit of the self that is already free. Therefore, the, the, it has to, the, the pursuit has to take a cognitive stance. It has to be understood. And just like Lord Krishna, uh, uh, Arjuna told Lord Krishna, you please decide what is the best for me. I am your student. You are my teacher. And so this the knowledge becomes very teacher-centric 
because the teacher who learned from his teacher, who learned from her teacher, who learned from his teacher, who learned from her teacher, <laughs> becomes a part of a long lineage from whom I gained this knowledge. So knowledge is teacher-centric, but then it is also scripture-centric, where the teacher is just an amplifier, like this, like this microphone of the knowledge. Amplifies this knowledge and puts it in the context of this, uh, of, of, of how the person can understand, how it makes sense. That is what the teacher is. Because if you were to just read the Bhagavad Gita on your own, what you will get is a headache. <laughs> Instead of the knowledge, you will get a nice headache. Many things will not be understood. Many things will say, okay, been there, done that, been there, done that, know that, know that, know that. Okay, next. Okay, chapter three, next. Chapter four, next. Chapter five, next. Oh, okay, over. And then people say, oh, I've done this. I've already done this. And somebody, one man came and told me, I've studied the whole, I've read the whole Bhagavad Gita, nothing happened, I'm still depressed. What should I do? Can you please take some antidepressants? <laughs> Oh, but I'm disappointed. Gita is supposed to work. It is supposed to work. If you follow the instructions on the, you know, like if you take a medicine, you follow the instructions on the bottom. Some medicines say, but for best effect, take it on an empty stomach. And then if you insist on taking it on a full stomach, nothing is happening. Naturally. Here, so the Bhagavad Gita also likewise is ingested <laughs> after some after the heart is emptied of strong preferences and strong prejudices. That is what take it on an empty stomach, an empty heart. There should be some space for the knowledge to go, for the knowledge to grow. There should be some space. It has to take root. Otherwise, it's like throwing seeds on a hot rock. How will they germinate? You have to create a fertile ground for this for the teachings to grow. And that is karma yoga. That is what is called karma yoga. Creating space for these chapters to really, really sink in. For the message of these chapters to sink in, there has to be some kind of a space that is there. And, and that space is created by making every relationship and every action that one engages in into a form, into a conscious prayer, into a form that is nothing but a conscious prayer. And in that conscious prayer is growth because prayer is not just something that I sit in, in a temple or in a church or in a mosque and do. Prayer is in the way I perform every single action. That is that that you convert your action into prayer. Everything that you have to do, you grow to like what you have to do simply because you have now understood you can't always do as you like. So you become a person that likes whatever they have to do. This is this transformation is karma yoga, where God is at the center of your life, 
And everything that you do is an offering. That itself shows that you won't do anything against dharma. Dharma is very much there. That which is right, that which is correct is what you will do. And then the results of action here in this picture called karma yoga are not very important because the only result of action that I want from all my actions is to grow. Is to grow out of, of my limitations, of my feeling that I'm always targeted of my smallness. That is what I want. And this is exactly the uh, that, that which is described here. This is what is described as karma yoga. Every relationship is valid. Every desire is valid. So long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. So long as I'm not riding roughshod over the uh, over the desires of other people. So long as I'm not competing wrongly and in an unhelpful way. All desires are valid. So if I am in the right, if I'm following all the ethical things, then no desire is wrong. But how do I go about fulfilling the desires? That is karma yoga. Prayerfully. Prayerfully. And I allow things that are not fulfillable. Unfulfillable desires are dropped. Like my teacher used to say, the problem with desires is that most of the things are what? Illegal. Some of them are immoral. Some of them have too many calories. They're fattening. So in this way, one outgrows the desires. Really, one trains the heart to, to just let go of the desires. And there is a little freedom in relation to those desires. One commands a certain kind of a freedom. And equipped with that, one becomes so mature that the desires themselves slowly drop off without even a conscious attempt to try to manage them. It's not about control. It is called the philosophy of desire management. By shifting the focus from being obsessed with the results of action, shifting the focus from that to self-growth. Self-growth comes because of disappointment. Self-growth comes when there is some hardship. Self-growth comes because one understands one can't have everything that one likes. And so, equipped with this self-growth, the person becomes ready for this knowledge. There are some more. This, this brings us to the close of chapter 3. Karma Yoga. There are a few other things to discuss before we finish the first third of it. We can continue tomorrow. We have plenty of time. This was actually the crux of it. So I took a longer time to describe this. And then so when we meet tomorrow, 
will continue with, with the message of the Bhagavad Gita, which is a very important message on self-growth and how to prepare to the heart to receive these teachings, which are very universal and which are beneficial to me uh, to let go of the sorrow and live freely. Thank you. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnapurnamadachate Purnasapurnamadachate Om Shanti 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 Harihi Om Shri Guru 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 Om Shri